All right. If you will turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning as always. And before we get started, I wanted to quickly say thank you. Um, the other day, Katie and I were planning for Christmas time and what we're going to do with our nursery volunteers. And we counted somewhere around, um, it was like 40 different families that are currently serving our kids in some capacity. And so think about the numbers that that affects, those 40 people. And so I just want to say thank you to those of you who help support our church in that way. Whether it's childcare, whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's helping on Wednesday nights. I don't know if we always perceive how important that that ministry is for the life of the church. Investing in these kids, serving these families so that Christ would be glorified. You know, we can change diapers and wipe rear ends for the glory of God. And praise God that that is happening here. So I am very thankful for, for, for this church in general, for particularly those who serve our children. I get to work with you on a regular basis, and it is a joy. It is a joy to work with you. All right. Well, let's, let's pray, and we will get started. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to open your word. Father, I ask that you give me the ability to speak what you would have for this church. Edit my notes and my thoughts so that it would fit in line with your work to build this church. We understand that it is your work, but it is something also you have tasked us with. So, Father, we ask that you would work in such a way so that our hearts would be affected by this text. And that we would walk out here, walk out of here, um, as we sung so glorious this morning, praising Christ for the work he has done and the work he has promised to do. Father, we pray that you would speak through Nehemiah this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1835, the Texas Revolution began. This was a war that was fought to win the independence of the Republic of Texas from Mexico. And by 1836, Santa Ana, the president of Mexico, had amassed a massive army and was leading a campaign to quell the rebellion. In February of that year, William Travis and about 200 Texians, or Mexican Texans, took up defense in the Roman Catholic mission of San Antonio, otherwise known as the Alamo. The Alamo was in a key position, and it was an entrance into the rest of the Texas territory. It was all also well-suited to mount a defense, as it was surrounded by thick, substantial walls. However, with few men and few supplies, William Travis was desperate. And so he penned these words. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot. And our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you, in the name of liberty, to come to our aid with all dispatch. 
The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis. After two weeks of this siege, Santa Anna became frustrated and commanded his army, take the fort, we take no prisoners. At five o'clock that morning, the advancing army scaled the walls and killed all of the defenders. The only survivors were a couple of females and children who would go and tell the story of the Alamo. Even though every defender of the Alamo was killed, the time that Santa Ana was preoccupied with the Alamo was used by Sam Houston and the other leaders of the Texas Rebellion to organize a government and to organize an army that would withstand and eventually defeat the invading Mexican forces. Remember the Alamo became the battle cry of the rest of the Texas Revolution. In our passage today, we come across a character named Nehemiah who stands in a situation where he is in a city surrounded by ruined walls and an enemy that would very much like to see him defeated. And so read with me, if you will, Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants on construction and half of my servants held spears, shields, bow, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on his work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so to begin the passage where we do... Nehemiah describes a situation where there's some enemy, the enemy had some plan that God has frustrated, and that they are to continue the work. So if I'm going to pick a passage like this where we start in the middle, we have to understand what each of those three aspects means if we're going to understand the text itself. So what is the context of the passage? Who are the enemies? What plan did God frustrate? And what work is being done? So let's talk about the book of Nehemiah in general for a second. The book of Nehemiah is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It's kind of towards the first half in our physical location in our Bibles today, but it is one of the latest books ever written, about 400 years before Matthew. It's also the second half of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew Scriptures. But because their main characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, are different, the modern translators have just split them into two. 
So whenever we think of Ezra, we think of Nehemiah going hand in hand with, the, with both of them. Now, at the beginning of the book of Ezra, Israel has been overtaken by Babylon. They've been um, invaded and overrun and captured by Babylon. And so they are living in exile in Babylonian captivity. But about 50 years later, as recorded in Ezra, the Persians come and overtake the Babylonians. So if the Israelites didn't think if they were in a bad situation enough being under Babylon, now they're under a new rule in Persia. And during this time, Jerusalem is decimated. The walls are left in ruins. And at this time, when there's a major city, if there's no walls, there's no security in the city. There's no safety. There's no way of guarding the city against intruders. They are at the mercy of marauders and advancing armies. So at the beginning of our book in Nehemiah, he is a cupbearer to the current king, King Artaxerxes. And so Nehemiah, hearing news of Jerusalem and the state that it's in, becomes very distraught. And so while he is doing his duty before the king, he appears downtrodden. To the point where the king asks Nehemiah, why are you so sad? Nehemiah tells him, it's because the city, the city of David, the city of my people, lies in ruins. The walls are downed. And so the king, being gracious, gives Nehemiah the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. He gives him full passage, and he also provides the resources to rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem and begins the hard work of rebuilding the wall. Now, while he's there, there are a few officials in the surrounding area, Sanballat, Tobiah, and a few others, who are made aware of what's going on, and they're enraged. They're angry. It says earlier in chapter 4, verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So the enemies had planned to come and disrupt the work, to keep the walls from being built. The enemies of God love to see the city of God lie in ruins. And so Sanballat, Tobiah plan to disrupt the work, to discourage the Israelites from rebuilding their city. But as we read in verse 15, God frustrates their plans. How does he frustrate their plan? Well, Nehemiah hears of their plans in some way. And so in verse 9, he says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So how did God frustrate their plans? By some way, making it known to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah prays to God, which suggests that he is trusting God. He is trusting God to care for him, to care for his people, and to care for Jerusalem. And yet, he sets a guard. I think typically, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize things. Because Nehemiah's reaction to hearing that trouble is afoot is to pray, trust God, and then do something about it. He doesn't have to wait from a divine revelation from God to know that if there's an enemy about to attack, I better set up some defenses. He doesn't need to lay out a fleece to know whether to set out a guard. He understands that if he 
is to complete the objective, if he is to build the walls, and there's an enemy trying to disrupt the work, he better do something to thwart the enemy. And so he prays and he does. He prays to God and sets a guard. And so because their, their plot is frustrated, they call it off, and the Israelites are able to continue the work. They're able to continue with the objective. They're able to continue building the wall. And so we have this devotion to this objective, to the building of the wall. And we touched on this briefly. It's, it's, it's vital for the, for the health and the life of Jerusalem. If there's no wall, there's no guarantee that the city lasts another day. And so if they expect Jerusalem to survive, they better well finish the wall. Well, we as believers have a work as well. A work, an objective that has been set out before us that we must strive after, we must complete. Now, it's not to rebuild a wall, but it is to understand, if we're going to understand this, we have to understand our purpose as a church. Everything that is designed and created is created for a purpose. I was thinking about this this morning. My car is a Honda Insight. Okay? Small little white car that is meant, its purpose is to transport people and cargo from one location to another. And something I learned yesterday is that one of the things that my car can transport is bales of hay. All right? Now, coming from West Texas, driving around an inside is difficult for me because everybody else in West Texas drives big old pickups. So to drive this little Honda Insight. So I was pretty proud of my car yesterday to be able to, you know, carry hay from one place to another. And I want to tell you, it did it great. Now, I apologize if in the next six months you come in a ride with me and you smell like hay or you get hay in your hair or in your clothes because it is everywhere. But when you do, remember that my car was just fulfilling its purpose, okay? So the purpose of the church is threefold. And it's described... In Matthew 28, so Jesus, Jesus comes back to life, he speaks to his disciples, and he tells them their purpose. And we know this is the purpose because the next book, Acts, talks about the establishment of the church. So they're given a purpose, and the church is established. So in Matthew 28, we read about the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the purpose of the church, the reason the church exists, is for these three purposes. To worship God, to evangelize the world, and to build the body. We see all three of those here, and as Jesus describes, so the first one, worshiping God. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Okay? He is establishing his credibility and authority. And because of who he is, we are to go. So everything that comes after, all of the going and the building that we're supposed to do, is in response to who Jesus is. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah who has come and who is establishing his kingdom, and his kingdom begins with his people repenting of their sin and turning to Christ. So, it's, so all of this going and building is out of worship to the risen Messiah. 
who has authority to give those commands to us. So the first purpose of the church is to worship God. If, if we just wipe out everything we do and begin to look at it one by one, we must ask, are we, are we as a church worshiping God with the things that we're doing? Is the, is the purpose of, of all of our activities, of all of our ministries, of all of our missions that we do, is the purpose of those to worship God? And if our answer to that question is no, then we're not completing the objective that Jesus set out for us. Because that is the first thing that the church is told to do. The continuation of the work that we're supposed to do is to worship God. Second thing. Second thing that we as the church are supposed to work at, supposed to pursue, is evangelizing the world. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we are to worship God by proclaiming the gospel that we have believed. So when Jesus gave this command to his disciples, they understood what it meant to to trust Jesus. They had lived with him, they had seen him die, and they had the resurrected Messiah had appeared before them. And the gospel they had believed is this that we are sinners, every single one of us. The church is made up of a group of sinners who have recognized their sinful state before a holy God. A holy God who must judge and punish sin. And so, we recognize that and we trust that Christ took our place on the cross. He took the death that we deserved and he was resurrected back to life, showing that he had defeated sin and death. And so we are to go and therefore make disciples of all nations with this same gospel, the gospel that we have believed, that we confess to know. We are to take this to the world. We are to make disciples. And the, and the third purpose of the church is to build the body. So you can't have a body if we're, not, if we're not born again, if we're not brought into the fold through the gospel. But we also must pursue building that body that we've been brought together to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded these disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We are to build the church by discipling, by teaching what scripture has told us. So our purpose is to worship God, to evangelize the world, and, pre, I mean, and build the body. That is the purpose of the church. That is the work that we are to continue. But the work is not happening without, ad, or without obstacles, without difficulties that are coming up. Same with Nehemiah. So in verse 16 of Nehemiah chapter 4, it says this. From that day on, this is him having an awareness of, of the, the enemies that are outside of the walls that are wanting to, wanting to destroy the work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half servants worked on, um, and, and, and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And so, while the work advances, the guard is not let down. And you'll notice this readiness of the Israelites in this situation. The work is taking place with one hand, but a sword is held in the other. Now, I can, just thinking about this for a moment, this is probably not the most efficient way to build a wall. 
with a sword in one hand. I mean, that would probably make the work pretty difficult. But notice Nehemiah's commitment to protecting. He, he knows that if we're not ready, if we're not prepared to defend the wall, then all our work is for naught. If we are not readily preparing a defense, then we are susceptible to all kinds of attacks. And so we have this, they're, they're, the swords are either in their hands, the spears are in their hands, the swords are on their belt. He also comes up with a plan to, to, for the Israelites to run to where the trumpet is sounding. Um, and when we were talking about the Alamo earlier, it is suggested, because of the wall of the Alamo, that if you were to line up all the able-bodied defenders along the wall, that they would be separated by about seven feet each. Because the wall was so big and because there were so few men, they were separated by seven, seven feet in certain places, vastly outnumbered. And Israel, Jerusalem, seems to be in a similar situation here. Nehemiah recognizes that there's very few people to fight. And so if someone were to attack from any particular side, we don't have the, enough able-bodied men there to fight. So in a situation where the enemy comes up, we're going to blow the trumpet from that place. And when you hear the trumpet sound, you run. You run to that place. So while the work advances, the guard is never let down. Ephesians tells us of the kind of adversary that we are up against. Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not have a wall that protects us from physical enemies who are wanting to come in and to destroy us. But that does not mean that our enemy is going to deal with us any less lightly. Our enemy is coming to destroy the work that is taking place because the work that is taking place is meant for the worship of God. And the enemies of God are committed to seeing the worship of God stop. And so we as a church must be prepared to defend. We must be prepared to, defight, to fight. And there are two things in particular that I feel are very helpful and very timely for us now. Things that we must be prepared to fight. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against the authorities, the cosmic powers. What he's talking about there is the devil and, and the demons and sin. And so the things that we must be prepared to fight in particular, now these are certainly not exhaustive, but I feel like they're helpful and they're far-reaching in their implications. The first one is we must be prepared to fight and defend against disunity. We must be prepared to fight and defend against disunity. So what is true unity in the church? If we're going to fight against something, we must know what we're called to pursue. That's, that's how you fight something. If, if we're fighting disunity, we must pursue unity. So what is true unity in the church? Unity is a spiritual reality that is maintained by the Spirit of God and is marked by a shared allegiance to Jesus and our common faith. I'm going to say that again. Unity is a spiritual reality that is maintained by the Spirit of God and is marked by a shared allegiance to Jesus Christ and to our common faith. We sit in this room 
coming from a multitude of backgrounds, coming through from a multitude of situations, coming from a multitude of socioeconomic levels, and we sit in this room united. United because of our common Savior and our common faith in that Savior. There is nothing else that would bind such a ragtag group of people together such as us. And I want to just praise God for the unity that this church exhibits on a daily basis. This was something that Brian even remarked about just a few days ago. This unity that this church has for our purpose of worshiping God and proclaiming God's word to a lost and dying world. And so the enemy would love nothing more than to see divisiveness within us. And so we must strive for unity. Why is unity so important? Well, because it is the evidence to the fact that Jesus is out of the grave. If we are unified in our common faith of Christ, that testifies to the world that Jesus is absolutely who he says he is, and he has absolutely done what he says he's done. If there's division within us, if there's disunity, then what that suggests to the world is, well, that stuff must not be true. Because look at how they fight. Look at how they bitter. Look at how they're divided over such frivolous things. But when there's unity, they have to question, why are they so unified? It's because Jesus is out of the grave. So how do we fight for unity? Well, Paul makes pretty clear in Ephesians chapter 4 that unity is something to pursue. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So how do we fight for unity? We remember our common bond and we bear with each other in humility, gentleness, and patience. This is, this is not something that happens passively. When sinners crowd together in tight-knit places, sparks fly. Rough edges meet each other. Because we are so different, because we come from so diff- many different backgrounds, because our personalities can clash, there will be tendencies to try to be dis- or tendencies to be disunified. So we must first and foremost remember our common bond, remember our common savior. That's what that's what Paul is doing here. He's reminding them you have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God. So first and foremost we must remember our common bond. If we are to fight for unity, we must remember our common bond. We also must must absolutely exhibit humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. These things are so important because of our tendency to be uh, divided, because of our sinful tendencies that perk up in our hearts and want to, want to see the light of day and want to express themselves. When we want our own way, when we want our own thing, we must be humble, we must be gentle, and we must be patient. Another thing that we must be ready to defend or fight against, not just disunity, 
but discontentment. These two don't necessarily get the press that they deserve in terms of how often we talk about it. There are certain sins that we talk about and we talk about how terrible they are and how awful they are and how dangerous they are. And we should. We should be actively talking about the, the danger and the, deadly and the deadliness of sin. But these two are no less deadly, maybe even more so in some cases, disunity and discontentment. One pastor describes contentment as being this. Contentment is the inward quiet spirit that joyfully submits to God's providence. How quick are we to complain? How quick are we to doubt God's goodness in our life? If we are discontent, it says to the world that we don't trust God and that we have a better way. Both of these suggest something to the outside world. And discontentment says we don't trust God and then we think we have a better way. I mean, who would have been given an ample opportunity to be discontent more than Nehemiah? The city that he loves lie in ruins and there are enemies outside the gate who who just want to see it destroyed. And yet he confesses that he trusts God. He prays regularly. Nehemiah is a great book on prayer. If you're ever curious what it looks like to pray in difficult times, pray in times of war, read Nehemiah. Because this man loves to pray. He loves to show that he trusts God in all things. And so how do we fight contentment? Well, the first thing we do is we read the scriptures. Because this is where we find the promises of God. And that is where God's people find contentment, are in his promises. Knowing that his promises are true and will come to pass brings contentment in the life of a believer. The second thing we must do is we must remember the ways that God has already exhibited providential care in our lives. If we're honest for just a moment and think about the ways that God has been caring for us providentially, we'll come up with a multitude of things. Because every day God exhibits his care for us in some way or fashion. And the most supreme way to remember how God has cared for us is remembering the fact that that we're saved in the first place. What more could testify to the goodness and providential care of God than our own salvation? The fact that he has sent his son to die on our our behalf. How could we doubt a God like that? How could we be discontent if that's the way God is dealing with us? And so to fight discontentment, we must regularly meditate on these things because we are so quick to forget. I am so quick to forget and to complain and to say, why is it this way? God, why would, you, why would you let this happen? We must fight for contentment. We must be ready to defend against discontentment. So we prepare the defense. We never let the guard down. Another thing that Nehemiah shows here is his willingness, or his, that, that these fights happen as, as a corporate body. 
This is not something we do on our own. This is something we do as a full church. And so we must run to the trumpet. Nehemiah devises this battle plan so that if enemies come, the trumpet sounds, people are to run to the trumpet. We are called to support the needs of those in the body. Now, there are, there are physical needs, and this is, this is something that this church is phenomenal at doing, attending to the physical needs of those around us. These are absolutely necessary and good for the health of the church. We must be attentive to the needs of others. But something that I personally have a harder time dealing with is the spiritual needs of others. Because when we start talking about sin and, and those types of things, that's whenever things get messy and nasty, and we just we don't want to deal with those things. But we must be willing to help when the trumpet sounds. So first, we must be willing to confess when we need help. We must be willing to sound the trumpet when the enemy is attacking. Know that you are not meant to fight this, fight this fight on your own. Know that when you are dealing with a difficult sin or a difficult situation, or when you are depressed or despairing or doubting God, that you are not meant to fight those on your own. That is why the body exists, to build each other up, to spurn each other to righteousness in pursuing God. But first we must be willing to confess when there is weakness, when there is sin, when there is difficulty. Many times we like to portray ourselves in a particular light. And confession flies in the face of that. Because it's, it's finally admitting to someone else, hey, I can't handle this on my own. Hey, I'm having a really hard time with this. I know I'm typically smiling when I'm here, but man, it is tearing me up inside. We must be willing to confess. And I think one thing that we're scared about is that when we confess, people are going to go, are you kidding me? You're dealing with that? Get out the door. Don't come back in here again. That's not how Christians respond when you confess weakness. That's not how Christians respond when you confess difficulty and sin. Christians respond in grace. So find a close brother and sister and be willing to confess things that you're dealing with because we're meant to fight this fight together as a corporate body. And then when when someone does come to you and confesses those things, don't write them off. Don't just say, well, I'll pray for you. Absolutely do that. Pray. Nehemiah demonstrates that. When there's issues, we pray. But begin working with them, showing them how, how Christ has overcome that, overcome that sin, that difficulty. Assist. Join them in the fight. Lock arms. Be ready to fight. Because this is not a time of peace. Notice how Nehemiah and his servants sleep. Verse 23. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. This is not a time of peace. This is a time of war. To the point where Nehemiah says, we, we didn't even take off our clothes because we didn't know when the enemy was going to attack. We just knew it was going to come. And so we prepared ourselves. 
This is not peacetime, this is wartime. Peace does not come until the, the, the king returns and places all his enemies under his feet as a, as a, at his footstool. He's beginning to do that in the already not yet, but it's not fully happening. So we are in the midst of war. So we must be ever ready to fight. So if we are to continue the work, if we are to prepare the defense, what's the fuel for the fire? So it's not a perpetual motion device that continues on its own without any kind of input. So how do we, how do we fuel this? How do, we, how do we gather the resources to continue the work? How do, we, how do we mount our defenses? Well, we do that by trusting the Lord. Nehemiah exhibits this in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Notice he doesn't say, with numbers we'll defeat the enemy. With superior tactics we'll defeat the enemy. Rally to the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. This is not a fight that takes place even just as a corporate body. We are called to fight as a corporate body, but know that God is the one fighting for us. He's the one that gives us the ability to continue the work as well as prepare the defense. If we go up in this passage just a little bit further into verse 10, it says this, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. That's a pretty dire situation where both the people inside Jerusalem understand their weakness and the people outside Jerusalem understand their weakness. They both confess, we can't do this. We can't ward off an enemy attack. And the enemy outside says the same thing. They can't stop us. We can kill them and stop the work. But we continue. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space beneath the wall and open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And then verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us. And that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall. Each to his work. So how do we cultivate this trust? How do we put ourselves in a position so that we can trust God. While we continue the work and prepare the defenses. If this, is the fuel to fire, if this is the fuel to the fire, how do we do it? And you'll notice a theme. This has been the application every time we meditate on God's word. God's word is what enables us to continue the work. It's what declares the work to us and then tells us how to do it. It's how we defend and it's what cultivates trust within the hearts of believers. We meditate on the word of God. 
And so with that in mind, I would love to read with you Psalm 144. This is a psalm of David that is very helpful for describing who this God is who will fight for us. Who this God is who has given us the work. Who this God is who has prescribed to us how we defend. This is that God. Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock. Who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. Who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants, full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cries of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This morning we are discussing what the church is to do in wartime. And there might be those among us this morning who are not a part of that church who are not a part of that assembly, who are not the people whose God is the Lord. And so most of what we talked about this morning has been directed to believers. And I want to specifically address unbelievers because I believe there are some among us this morning. And I want to say to you that there is an opportunity for you to join this fold, for you to join this fight. And that is simply by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. See, Jesus is the one who has fought this battle for us, and he has already defeated the enemy. And he has done it in such a way so that we can be brought in and be called children of God. But it comes first with confessing that we do need a Savior. And so I would invite you to come join us in that fight By pledging your allegiance to Christ as Lord over your life. Because otherwise you live in the assembly of the enemies of God. And I would have you notice that that God does not deal lightly with his enemies. But he deals graciously with his people. And he invites you freely to come and to join that fold. 
Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we ask first and foremost that you would build this church. Build this church in such a way that we are marked by faithfulness to you and to your commands. Father, we ask that you would allow us to continue the work that you have prescribed for us. That we would strive to worship you, that we would strive to evangelize the world, and that we would strive to build the body. Father, protect us from the enemy. Protect us from disunity. Protect us from discontentment. And may we trust you. Your plan is good and right. May we trust your plan. Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word. And we thank you that you save us by your word. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.